Welcome to PD Insider, the podcast edition. In each episode, we bring you conversations with experts in the law firm professional development community so that you can stay current on industry trends, topics, and innovations. In this episode, PLI's Craig Miller speaks with Jennifer Leonard, Chief Innovation Officer and Executive Director, Future of the Profession Initiative at University of Pennsylvania's Carey School of Law. In her wide-ranging conversation, Jen delves into her cutting-edge role at Penn Law and how design thinking and prioritizing empathy can positively impact attorneys' performance in relationships within and outside of the firm. Welcome, Jen. I'm pleased to see you. Craig, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to see you as well. It's our pleasure. Chief Innovation Officer to Law School. That's not typical. What can you tell me about your role at Penn Law and how did your career path lead to an expertise in innovation? Yeah, it's definitely not a a typical title. I believe that uh, ours is the only law school that actually has a chief innovation officer, and I am proud and honored to serve in that role. Uh, I graduated from law school from Penn Law School in 2004, and I spent about 10 years in practice, both in private sector practice and also in government practice. Uh, And I became interested in what I saw as the skills that were separating the really great lawyers from the really exceptional client service providers and realizing that a lot of those skills, which really go to human relationships and uh, being creative partners with your clients and the people in your organization, were not really being taught when I was in law school. And I was excited to learn that Penn Law was developing a center on professionalism to teach law students all of those impact skills. And so I came back to law school in 2013 to lead that center and to grow those programs, which I did over the course of about six years And at the same time, I was teaching a course on law firm management in the new normal, which at the time meant law firm management in the post-2008 Great Recession, um, which now seems uh, sort of quaint by comparison to what we're going through now. But I taught that course for about six years. And what I realized was, even though we were talking about these seismic changes in the legal profession that the Great Recession had started... Um, Aside from dabbling a little bit in alternative fee arrangements or talking slightly differently about diversity and inclusion, year to year, I really was not hearing that much different uh, about what we were studying in the class, about how law firms were um, thinking about the way they provided client service. And at the same time, I was developing a real interest in attorney and law student well-being and engagement and health of lawyers and law students. I was a person who struggled with anxiety and depression, both in law school and in practice. And I actually thought I was the only person in the legal profession who was struggling with these things. And when I started career counseling students, they would sit across from me and tell me how they weren't capable of doing this work, how, you know, they were going to be found out for the imposter that they were. And I started to realize that so many people in the legal profession struggle with some of these um, challenges around imposter syndrome and anxiety. And so all of those things came together uh, for me in a way that made me start to question the way we do everything in law, the way we practice law, the way our services get delivered to our clients, um, the lack of equity and inclusion, the troubling statistics around lawyer well-being. 
And so in 2018, our dean asked me to lead a cross-departmental working group to think about innovation in law schools. And that was our only charge, just think about innovation in law schools. And so it was broad and exciting. And we spent about six months examining what law schools were doing across the board under the guise of innovation. And it turned out that they were doing all different kinds of things that counted as innovation. And we thought about the strengths of our school and the strengths of our broader university and the hallmarks of those two institutions and how they relate to one another. And we decided that we really wanted to focus on interdisciplinarity and real attorney and law student engagement and a holistic and lifelong uh, formation of the lawyers that we're producing into practice. And all of that uh, came to be the future of the profession initiative, which I've now had the great honor of leading for the last two years. So it was a, a long and winding road to get to something that I'm really excited about, which is thinking about all the ways we can make law better in the future. Well, there is a lot there. And, you know, having managed through the 2008 aftermath, I can assure you that the managing today is really much more complex than even that was. Uh, the mantra at that time pretty much seemed to be everyone was tasked to do more with less. But then as things started to pick up, that seemed to fall a little bit by the wayside. Technology, of course, really helped through that process. And technology is helping through the process right now as we evaluate our, our next steps as a business and as a profession. You employed design thinking in your role. Can you explain what the term means and how you use it in the classroom? Why should lawyers know design thinking? So design thinking is a creative problem-solving framework that has been used in other disciplines like architecture, engineering, business, even education for decades now. And it is a way of approaching problems by putting the human who is engaged with your service or your product or your system at the center of thinking about how best to develop that service product or system. I teach a five-step framework, which essentially boils down to empathizing with your human end user. Uh, what are her pains? Uh, what is she trying to get out of uh, her interactions with you? And what are the things that she's seeing, hearing, experiencing in her environment so that you can really try as best as possible to put yourselves in her shoes? Uh, then you distill everything you've learned from that empathy process into a problem statement. And that problem statement will really guide you in developing solutions, uh, which is the third stage, which is called ideation, where you are generating lots of new ideas for how to respond to this problem statement. And then you want to whittle down those ideas uh, into one or two or three that you rapidly prototype and test cheaply. And then you will test, which is step five. Step four is prototyping. Step five is testing. And you test and you get feedback from your end user. And then you refine over time. It's a nonlinear process that continues feeding upon itself so that you're producing better and better results for your users. Things that you really enjoy using have been through a design thinking process. And lawyers really have not ever taken the time, I think, historically to sit in the shoes of their users, of their clients, and experience what it's like to receive services or engage in legal systems. Um, legal systems were designed by lawyers for lawyers to use, and we're able to navigate them. But most people don't have a lawyer when they engage with the legal system, uh, which makes it very difficult to navigate. And even in the corporate arena, we know that clients can become frustrated with the ways that we do business sometimes. So I think it's a really powerful framework to step out of the lawyer role, step into the client role, and design new ways to make that experience better and keep refining those ways over time. That's really interesting. 
the whole idea of empathy being sort of the starting point and uh, the iterative nature of the process uh, makes me think a little bit about agile methodology when it comes to development, because the idea is to, is to do something and then to, you know, to do it again and improve it and that kind of thing. And someone who is trained in uh, Six Sigma process improvement, I think about the steps that were known as DMAIC, define, measure, analyze, improve, and control, you know, with the purpose of driving you know, greater customer satisfaction. The same thing, the end product is supposed to be something that is sat- more satisfying to your customer. And I think that s- sort of dovetails neatly with, uh, with the design thinking principle. That's exactly right. And design thinking is by no way the only framework to use. As you've referenced, there are others that are really effective as well. But that empathy piece that you note, Craig, is the most important piece. And I I think it's also interesting for lawyers to know, I think there's anxiety in the legal profession about the acceleration of technology and artificial intelligence and our robots going to take our jobs and be doing our work. And experts in this area, including Jim Jones at the Georgetown Center for the Study of the Legal Profession, are really predicting that while some of the tasks may be done by artificial intelligence um, and to other technology, what can't yet be replicated is our ability to humanize and empathize with our clients and to exercise that judgment and to engage like we are today in a human to human interaction. And so I think lawyers should be really excited about that and also open to adopting more of these methodologies in their practice. You know, do you think that the sort of traditional apprenticeship model that we associate with the law is a roadblock to design thinking and innovation? Or how do you think the, the traditions of the profession actually play a role? I don't think it's a roadblock necessarily. I, I actually think it's very important that junior lawyers in particular learn the practice from those who have been doing it for a very long time. Um, I always say to my students, even though we spend the class ideating wild ideas and coming up with innovative solutions, one semester that included a focus on using visual contracts, uh, cartoons that would help end users understand their legal rights and obligations. And it's a really effective way to communicate to people who maybe don't have legal training. But I always say to them, don't go to your big law firm job the first year and turn in a cartoon (laughs) instead of a memo that is drafted appropriately and using all of the precedential value and all of the um, well-honed training that you got in law school, you'll be fired. (laughs) So learning when to deploy design thinking and when to be following precedent is important. So I think teaching law students how to embrace ambiguity while also following uh, in the footsteps of those who are training them is really critical. But just focusing on the pandemic then for a minute, I mean, what what do you see as the long-term effects of it? You know, there's certainly the the pieces of where it's impacted work-life balance, but which, which changes from the pandemic do you think will persist including the ambiguity that we, you know, the greater ambiguity perhaps that we're moving forward with, which will persist and which do you think are more likely to fade away? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would be a fool to try to predict with certainty right now what the what will keep and what will let go. Um, but I think it goes to strategic thinking. Uh, there's a professor at Dartmouth Tuck School of Business, Vijay Govindarajan, who talks about the, the three-box solution uh, to innovation, which is focusing on what makes you strong today, box one, and, and putting a lot of your energy there. And I would say that's where most law firms should be putting their energy. 
box number two, selectively editing things that are not working for you over time. I think that's one of the hardest things for organizations to do, to let go of things that they've done for a very long time. And then three is the innovation box, creating new opportunities for development in the future. And that's the category where we can put some of that junior attorney professional development work into. Um, but I think as we come out of the pandemic, I'm thinking a lot about BJ's three boxes and what are we going to selectively edit out of our post-pandemic experience from what we've been used to and what will become our box three in a post-pandemic world. I think it is enormously challenging right now, but it also creates huge opportunities for firms that approach it well. I mean, it, you know, people are experiencing this pandemic differently in every single household across the world. And that's what makes it really tricky. Uh, I also think we have to be thinking about the equity and inclusion issues too, that you know, I see most of the headlines talking about how great it is for working moms to have all this flexibility and it is fantastic. I walk my kids to daycare every day now and back, I walk home. I'm not throwing people in the car, I'm not angry, we're not stressed out. But at the same time, if, if the working moms in your firm are going to be sitting at home in their living rooms, doing their work and billing their time, they're not going to be at client meetings. They're not going to be going out and building those relationships that will allow them to ascend through the firm. So you could be exacerbating some of the problems that existed before the pandemic, really with the best of intentions of retaining your talent. And that's a real challenge. You know, with the return to the office, do you think that the gender issues risk becoming sidelined? Or now, because we've had a certain amount of, I think, heightened awareness, you know, do you think that that will be able to, to address them in some way and do better? I think you're exactly right, Craig. I do think there's a huge risk that the gender issues will be sidelined. And I understand why, because firms are trying to make a million decisions rapidly in a ton of ambiguous space. Um, and I think it's fairly easy to let issues that are important but not urgent uh, drive the conversation, which is actually what happens with innovation on the whole. Um, but I think that it would be a real detriment to the future of your firm to not be elevating these discussions in some way outside of the women's committee at your firm, um, really at the management team level, because I can only tell you anecdotally uh, conversations I've had with my colleagues, my friends, uh, not my colleagues, my friends outside of where I work who are working moms, many of whom are exhausted <laughs> at the end of this experience, are burned out, um, feel disengaged from where they worked or, or not appreciated. And for a lot of them, they're not really that jazzed about going back to the way things were before. And you risk this huge hemorrhaging of talent. And we were already doing that before the pandemic. So how do we take this opportunity and engage with our women attorneys and all of our working parent attorneys and tell them we're here, we're listening. We understand that each family's experience has been diff different and that some things worked really well and that other things were incredibly exhausting and stressful. So tell us what those things were and we can't promise you that we're going to solve all of them. But what we can commit to you is that we will continue talking with you. We will continue getting your feedback as we move into this next stage. And we'll iterate and we'll figure out what works best for you so we can keep you engaged. And remember that all these parents are also trying to help their kids reacclimate to society and to school and to their lives. And that's 
going to be the priority for parents is making sure that their kids are doing well. And I, I can only speak for myself again, but it is a much higher priority in my list of priorities than it would have been pre-pandemic. So I think it's, I think firms need to be thinking about that. Sure. I mean, in, in most places, the schools will be reopening again in the fall. There's no reason to think it's just going to snap back to normal, that uh, it's going to take another period of transition you know, to make that right and to get the kids back into the place that they need to be. I think another complexity is intergenerational ideas about work, um, which you layer on top of talking about gender and equity and inclusion. If the future is more about what we do for a living and less about where we do it, then how does that jibe with a more senior generation who wants their associates outside their office when they need them. And I think in the legal profession, we fixate on salaries, incoming salaries, where uh, people come to law school for lots of different reasons. And many of those reasons are really to contribute either to an organization or a business or to helping clients and adding more money. You know, that's nice, but it's not really advancing any of those goals they came to school with. That's very interesting because it reminds me that, you know, law school applications have really surged this year. There's been an increase of 28 percent applications over last year. In real numbers, there were 475,000 law school applicants. And we can compare that to like 339,000 as as recently as 2015. So thinking through all those different factors, what do you attribute this increase to and, and, and what's driving the attractiveness of the profession? Because of the uncertainty the pandemic caused, because people were thrown into what I think of as like a washing machine (laughs) of not knowing what was going to happen in the world, um, we've seen applications tick up across the board, including in MBA programs, law programs. Uh, People are really rethinking what they're doing for a living and investing their time and energy and money in, in developing new skills. I think at the same time, you're probably seeing an acceleration or or a building on a trend that we've seen probably over the last five years or so, uh, where aspiring talent, aspiring professionals are so alarmed by some of the things they're seeing around the world, uh, the attacks on democracy, the attacks on the rule of law, um, and the real need for lawyers to come in and defend all of those things that contribute to the health of our society. And so you're seeing um, a real flight to the profession and an attractiveness that's there right now. And that's really exciting. And we're also attracting for a variety of reasons, both through intentional recruitment. And I think because of the blurring of boundaries across industries, we're attracting more students from STEM backgrounds uh, now, which is really exciting with respect to our capacity to innovate and making sure that we not only attract those people to law school or attract them to our law firms, but once we get them there, give them opportunities to contribute that expertise, not only in legal counseling, but in advancing our innovation efforts. Um, Because the flip side of this coin, I think, is that right now we're enjoying a surge in popularity in our programs, in our profession, But if I were an aspiring professional, if I were a talented young person coming up and I saw a profession that had the challenges around health and well-being we do, have the lack of diversity and inclusion that we do, um, and we're talking about firms, you know, the firms that are insisting that people come work in an office nine to five, five days a week and sit for FaceTime, 
is something I think over time could make the profession less attractive to those very people that we now have populating our law schools, entering our profession, which is so great. So how do we make sure that we're adapting so that we continue to be attractive to them and the people who come behind them? That's interesting. Very interesting. I mean, at the Practicing Law Institute, with with some exceptions, we see lawyers in practice, whereas you see them as they're entering on their educational journey to become become lawyers. What would you say about the this generation of students who are entering law school. We talked about some of the things that the pandemic and some of the recent social issues uh, that have been front and center seem to be driving. But as they look out over their career, think about what their career might be like. Do you sense a different feeling, a different different drive that's motivating them than perhaps students of the past? Yeah, I think so. I think they're a really... um, a commendable generation because they are thinking about how to advance their skills and knowledge and talent to contribute to the greater society, to do something with their degrees that they derive meaning from. And for many of them, that is starting in a big law firm. Um, They are still very attracted to working in big law firm environments, but they're not, um, I think they're not as wedded to a single idea about exactly where the end point is in their, in their journey. I think we naively thought at, you know, 22, whatever I was when I came into law school, oh, I'm going to join a law firm and I'll be a partner at that law firm if I work really hard. Um, Which I don't think is what most law students think coming into law school anymore. They really want to think about how they build and grow their skills, how they're being engaged at work and where they can go for deeper engagement once they've built those skills. One of the really exciting developments, I think, in the last few years is that there's a deeper connection between and among students who are pursuing jobs in the private sector and students who come into law school knowing they're going into public interest work. I would say that those two groups of students used to be used to see each other as sort of different groups of students in law school, right? You're going to work at a big law firm. I'm going to go work um, in a public defender's office. And we really don't have that much in common. What's really cool now is that those students view each other as part of the same pursuit and they see how they can be working with one another, how they can help one another solve problems. And I think that's also the future. I think having more nimble partnerships among different types of organizations can both provide greater engagement uh, to the people who work in your firm. If you have an opportunity to innovate around a social justice problem, and maybe there's a firm-wide competition to do that in partnership with a nonprofit or an NGO outside of your firm, that's exciting both to the, the partner, to the junior attorneys who are working with you, and ultimately to advancing the cause. So there, there is this really exciting blurring of the lines among different sectors. So perhaps uh, the perception of a threat uh, to the rule of law really united people who are committed uh, to law as a profession and uh, helped some of the distinctions uh, uh, sort of fade away. And everyone knows that they want to contribute uh, to a certain uh, uh, securing of, of, of access to justice and the maintenance of, of, of rule of law. I think that's right. And I think they're also a generation who has grown up watching corporate culture evolve and corporations generally, you know, we'll see in the long term whether corporations are going to put their money where their mouths are, but they're taking much more public stances in support of the same issues that our students care about. 
And so the idea that you could go to a firm and provide legal counsel to a corporation that is embodying your values has real value to students. And they can see how that contributes to the work that their public interest colleagues are engaged in. And then, you know, the the dream would be that when they're all in practice together, they're continuing to develop and deepen that connective tissue so that we can solve problems uh, in a more powerful way where we're not isolating into our, our sectors. And to, and to circle back to where we sort of began, this is where innovation, this is where design thinking, uh, this is where that those types of tools uh, can help people, you know, problem solve uh, in in this ambiguous environment in which we now which we now really find ourselves in a sort of heightened uh, heightened way. I think it, it like like we've been talking about. I think it has dual benefits: one, in teaching innovation, so that you're developing future leaders that can drive your firm forward, but also developing really creative projects that can engage your your lawyers and your talent. Uh, Find a a cause that is important to your junior attorneys and task them with developing an innovative partnership with another organization. And what would that look like? And how could you pilot it and measure the results? That's that's terrific. And that's, I think, really uh, useful insight for the professional development uh, audience uh, that, uh, that will hear your remarks. Craig, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I hope it was helpful. I'd like to thank my guest, Jennifer Leonard, for sharing her insights. She's Chief Innovation Officer and Executive Director of the Future of the Profession Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania Cary School of Law. We look forward to you joining us for another edition of PLI's PD Insider. This is Craig Miller of the Practicing Law Institute. Thank you, be well, and get the shots. Thank you.